Hi guys, welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will. We have Brian with us today. Sup, heretics? You guys know what we do here. We help you escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of course, challenge that status quo that always needs challenging. Right? We challenge it all the time. All the time. Uh, and uh, <laughs> to our friends at the Beer and Bible Podcast, one day you'll find out that you are heretics in your Reformation <laughs> doctrines, but it's okay. Also, we need to have them on. That we do be need so to have them fun. on. He was, like, was posting in the RFP community group today how fun it is to trigger us because we're so not Reformed. <laughs> so <laughs> Definitely not. And uh, we'll find that out more today, I guess. Yes, today we're definitely going after. We're going to undercut that doctrine, absolutely destroy that doctrine. Um <laughs> which is what I feel like we do every time it comes up. But we'll discuss that more as we go. But today we are continuing our series through Genesis. I know it's been a little while. Thank you all for your patience with this. It's actually funny because I think I've gotten more positive feedback in our Genesis series than anything else of as far as actual feedback from the community. Meanwhile, it gets less views than all the others. Yeah. Isn't that weird? I get more positive feedback. Like People are like, we need more of this. This is amazing. I'm like, that's funny because... Y'all really like those who love it, love it. And then everyone else is like, meh. <laughs> to be fair, on audio, it's about the same as everything else. It's just video. It okay, so it's the YouTube love. audience. Y'all need to step yeah. it up. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, guys. So we're going to try to continue our tradition here about us reading our favorite quote from the last video. Our last video with Dr. Layton Flowers, um, where he talked about being a provisionist, is... Uh, was there supposed to response to Leighton Flowers specifically in the comments? Because Leighton said, hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, and, of course, I said, hey, thanks for coming on. And then this person, Mind Trap 28 no, O28, doesn't really matter. He says this. After he, you – This <laughs> is all sarcasm, by the way. So, so, <laughs> the sarcasm is so heavy. After hearing you go through the tulip and explain it in the exact same way as so many Calvinists before, and hearing you be so clear and precise with each point, I know that you don't understand Calvinism. I mean, <laughs> how can you repeat their point so clearly if you understood Calvinism? I think by being so clear, you flattened the multi-orbed diamond-shaped nuances of tulip. Certainly no one who was previously a Calvinist could be able to do so accurately and go through each point of the tulip. You must never have been a Calvinist then because only a real Calvinist can accurately portray and communicate Calvinism. I just can't take you seriously anymore, Mr. Flowers. I have heard you your accurate portrait of tulip for the last time. <laughs> Parentheses, sarcasm. <laughs> That was very church split worthy sarcasm. Yeah, we that kind of it. <laughs> that kind of snark will always get featured. Oh, <laughs> uh, so and that was actually kind of a thing uh, that he gets accused of not explaining it properly. Meanwhile, I've had uh, Calvinists literally explain it to me in the exact same way he explains it, but then they just don't like that he takes it to a certain conclusion, which is just. Yeah. So this is kind of a thing in general. Before we jump into Genesis, because this is uh, Genesis three is deep. We might not be able to get this done in one episode. We'll try. We'll try. Because there's a lot of things there. So, and it's kind of a thing. So when you're dealing with theology and philosophy, you're, you're peeling back layers to an onion. Okay? It might even make you cry. But, uh, <laughs> and so you're peeling back layers to this onion. And when you get to certain layers in an onion, you might not want to get to that next one because there's a conclusion there. So yep. you'll, you won't peel back that final layer. But what ends up happening a lot of times when you're talking to people about theology or philosophy is they're avoiding the conclusion. So you're like, okay, so this, so this layer of the onion, yes. This layer of the onion, yes. So this layer of the onion, yes. Which concludes to this layer of the onion. No! 
Well, premise one, two, and three all led to prem- uh, to the conclusion in four. So mm-hmm. you have to be careful not to just assume that your theology is true. Because this also happens. Um, people who leave different groups, they latch onto a new theology, and that's going to be their theology no matter what now because it makes more internal sense. But you still have to keep challenging your theology. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not, I don't have the same doctrinal beliefs I had a year ago and two years before that. And if I'm not growing, I'm not studying. It's not that we're just constantly throwing things out. It's, we're molding, we're changing. We're like, okay, yeah, that wasn't, that concluded something that didn't seem correct. We were able to, someone refuted that for us in scripture. Like, okay, uh, we're going to go a little bit different path. You're right. That wasn't quite right. Right. Um, so you should just constantly try to think that way because I think one of the greatest things, that we can do is try to know God in the most truthful way possible. Right, and that means challenging yourself. Uh, Andrew always gives j- jokes around that. I have a new doctrine every every uh, every other month, <laughs> and uh, I'm like, well, the biggest thing is, and, you know, it's a funny joke, but it, it is one of those things where I'm like, well, I want to study everything out and come to conclusions that I can. And sometimes it means I have to challenge my old ones. Ones I used to fight and argue about, mm-hmm. I now realize sometimes, like, ooh, that didn't actually doesn't hold up very well. I don't think at least as strongly as it could have. So anyway, with that being said, we're going to jump into Genesis 3. And Genesis 3 has got layers. Um, talk about peeling back an onion. And there's also a lot of Hebrew idioms. Now, what people don't understand is that the very first few chapters in Genesis is written in Hebraic poetry. Now, that does not mean that suddenly none of it is literal. And so I, as soon as you say poetry, you get your literalist yeah. who's shrieking. Unclick your caps lock button. Hold on a second. <laughs> so you say it's poetry, then people, you know, who are literalists freak out. You say you take this as a literal Adam and a literal Eve, and then you get the figuratists who are flipping out. Mm-hmm. Look, I believe you can poetically describe real events. But when a Hebraic poetry does not necessarily mean that they weren't real people. Hebraic poetry means that they're using themes throughout in even the words. Because we have we don't have the root word thing system that they have. They will use similar root words in their description that points to another truth, which points to another truth. So it branches off from it. So it's meant to get the brain engaged and kind of floating around in the ether a little bit as you're reading. So there are some of these things that are very poetic, and you wouldn't quite understand what these were if you weren't Jewish or Hebrew or didn't understand Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of these things, it's not your fault. It's not because you're stupid. It's just literally because you may have never known because you're just reading English. And, you know, otherwise this comes out like a, a typical narrative. But to them, there's a little bit more going on here, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. We are not going to probably be able to get to everything, because no matter what, I'm going to always kick myself in the pants in this Genesis 3 episode that we didn't go through everything that I wanted to go through. Yeah, we've had stuff in Genesis 1 and 2 we're like, oh, we missed that part. Shoot. Yeah, we'll drop in the comments if we have something that really we should have talked about. Right, exactly. But at least it gets you thinking and gets you some resources. So... Well, let's hop on in, shall we? And we're just going to go, I think, do you want to go by verse by verse, yeah, essentially? Let's just, go, let's just walk through let's it. Let's go through verses. Okay. Um, so verse 1 says, I'm reading the complete Jewish Bible. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any wild animal which Adonai God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you are not to eat from any tree in the garden? So right off the bat, we see Satan coming up to her and bringing in a temptation. Everyone's very familiar with this story, mm-hmm. this part of it. So a couple of things. This serpent is likened unto Satan. 
some people will be like, oh, this isn't Satan because, you know, that wasn't any, Satan wasn't even a figure that people really put together until later. Um, I think we can say safely it's Satan, especially since Revelation really points to Satan being the serpent, the great dragon is what it, it puts yeah. it as. So There's I think several a, references that talk about this in the Bible. Quite a few parallels where it's like, if it's not Satan, then what is it? Just a talking snake? Seems a little bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes more sense that because snakes... Um, now, think about... Okay, we'll jump right in. Harry Potter. Oh, okay. here we go. Sa- the satanic group, the evil group, was Slytherin, right? And their, their crest was a snake. When you think of snakes, you usually think of something villainous. Why? It's actually because of this story right here. That Satan was the great deceiver, the serpent, and he was crafty. And right here it says he was crafty. Now, fun fact for you, the same word here that says that they are more crafty is also the same word meaning uh, can mean vulnerable even. Like, has the same root. Again, remember the roots of the tree, like the roots words, has the same root meaning also vulnerable. Um, so, or, or even naked. So he was more vulnerable than the rest. So when you're like, what do you mean by that? Well, if you just recently rebelled against God and you're pushed out, you are more crafty, but also because you have separated yourself, you are more vulnerable. And now what's he going to do? Well, I'm going to take everyone else down with me. It kind of makes sense here. Yeah, and we see, we see his craftiness, right? Because he, he's going he's gonna to pull cr- uh, classic manipulative moves with Eve. And we'll get into this a little bit more, but he's going to... The way to manipulate people is you give them truth, half-truth, and lies. And they it all gets mingled together, and then you're like, well, what? Evil is at its most horrific um, when it's 90% true. Because, yeah. So um, I, doubt, I, I want to double-check my Hebrew there, but if I remember straight, that's exactly what craft, the root word for crafty is. Now I'm beginning to doubt myself, but I'm pretty sure that's actually what it is. Uh, but so we'll go ahead and go with that. If I'm wrong, let me know in the comments, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was uh, from a previous study. I'm going by memory on that one. We'll so. see if we have to issue a correction or not. Um, and you also see that he's talking about all the trees, right? He's saying, well, is it true God said not to eat of any of the tree, right? He's setting up this, he's setting up this question that's incorrect, right, so that she can correct him, and then he, he can use her correction to further manipulate and, and right. change her mind on this. And the first thing he does is, uh, qu- so he, as a general, like, oh, did he really say you were, you shall not eat of any tree? Well, she's clearly trying to get her to be like, no, just that tree. He's like, oh, that tree. Kidding, her to mention it. So it's a, it's a typical manipulative tactic. Mm-hmm. Um, you can learn a lot, actually, about that from this. So in verse 2 and 3, we'll read that next. So the woman answered the serpent. The woman answered the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you are neither to eat from it nor touch it or you will die. So here we see that this is a, first off, this is a tree in the middle of the garden. Now, certain ones say trees, certain people say tree. Fun fact for you, there's actually a debate whether the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil are, are the same tree. Interesting. It's a whole debate. Brad Vasquez, Vasquez uh, uh, alternate media, he he's, uh, flirts a lot with the idea it could have been one tree. So that's why yours might say tree or trees. There's actually a debate, literally, especially in Judaism, about that. Um, less <laughs> so in Christianity, but uh, it still exists. Um, I just go with two trees. I don't really care, <laughs> to be honest, because I don't think that's the point of the thing. But So again, this is the middle of the garden. So pretty interesting that all of all of the creation uh, that they existed in was surrounded it, orbited around it, if you will. Um, it was the center of their existence. So there, the temptation had to exist. 
Um, and and yeah. we're going to have to remind everyone of this a couple times. We did in the Genesis 2 video, too. It's the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right. And I think where some of the some the doctrines have kind of spun off from this idea is really kind of thrown out the whole idea of the knowledge of good, and it's just the tree of evil. And that's what spawned the fall of man, and, and everything's bad. Man's fully corrupt because of the tree of evil. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's knowledge, knowledge of. Knowledge of good and evil. Not the tree of evil, okay? It's not the tree of good. It's not the tree of doing. It's a tree of knowing. I think that it is very important for us to understand while we're going forward here. Yeah. And then we see, too, what does Eve say in response to Satan? What does she say that God commanded them to do? Not to eat of it or touch it. Oh. So this is actually um, something that has kept many a rabbi and sage up all <laughs> night. Is So think about it for a second. If you believe in the doctrine of uh, complete original sin, which is we are born sinners, we're not born innocent, we're born sinners, um, this is problematic because they say that we're born sinners because of the fall. So it's because of taking of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and going against God, therefore we were corrupted by sin, mm -hmm. and therefore we were born sinners. This here actually goes against that because it shows that she's already has screwed up beforehand. She added unto the words of God. Yeah. And many rabbis have pointed this out, that it shows actually that um, she wasn't completely accurate, but she didn't have knowledge of good and evil yet. So even when she added unto God's word, she didn't have the knowledge of it, so therefore she's not held accountable to it. Mm -hmm. and, and we can also offer the benefit of the doubt. There is a possibility that God did say that. We just don't have that in Scripture. We have the Scripture reference from Genesis 2, 16 through 17. He says, do not eat of it. He doesn't say do not eat or touch. I think it's actually because I honestly think uh, she did add to it. I, that's, my, that's my opinion. I think she adds to it because this is a very human thing to do. Mm -hmm. God says, don't get drunk. We say, don't drink alcohol. God says, um, you know, don't commit adultery. We say, don't touch the opposite sex. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, we just, we, we put up extra guardrails where God never did. It comes out of a, a reverence for God. So we understand where that idea is or, to try to push back Or a fear farther. of condemnation ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to come under that, so I'm going to put in extra steps and help you out, God. Or creating that slippery slope where, okay, well, if I, if I do drink alcohol, then I will get drunk. And that's just this assumption that the sin is, is going to happen no matter what. It's inevitable if you just get to that line that you've now created. If I go to the buffet, I will commit gluttony, right? Like, <laughs> or you could just... That is a fact. <laughs> uh, so, point is here is, you know, she responds and adds to God's word, and she quotes God and says that he, she shall ne never eat of it or touch it, lest they die. Um, and it says later on, uh, God said, in, in the ESV, I think this is what you're using in our yep. notes, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may not surely eat of every tree of the garden, but you may surely eat of, of every tree of the garden. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, lest you surely die. So in Genesis 2, we see that. He says not to eat of it. Now, um, one of the things, you wanted to talk about that as far as die was concerned, didn't you? Yeah, just, you can see here she is accurately depicting at least the consequence, right? She's saying death, God says we will die if we eat of it. Now, she added the touch part, but she's accurately at least depicting the consequence. And I think you also see here that Eve has knowledge of death. At least at some level, she has knowledge of, of death as a consequence and is a, a not a good thing that she wants. 
So it's kind of interesting because a lot of people will kind of point to, well, there's no death, there was no entropy, there was no decay, there was none of these things um, prior to the fall. And I, and I just have a hard time, I have an engineering background, took a lot of physics and biology. Um, I have a hard time thinking that God completely changed the physics of the entire world based upon the fall. I, I want to understand how, obviously, they were eating, right? Talks in Genesis 2 about God was watering the, the plants before man was there to work it. So the assumption is even in the garden, uh, man was working the fields and um, they were eating from it. The process of eating is digestion. It's breaking it down. It's, it is an entropic process. It's breaking it down. It, you are actively decaying the plant life that you just ate. So I don't know. And then the plants are dying, right? <laughs> they're, they're dying to give you nutrients. So I, I, I don't see that this concept of death just completely didn't exist before the fall. I think it exists enough that God can show them the consequence, and it existed enough at least that Adam and Eve understood that that was a bad thing. Right. And just because they weren't dying, and I, you know, you could say, I would say, you know, more they had a regenerative you know they weren't they their bodies itself wasn't experiencing age the ways way ours does you could say they had a perfect re, re cellular regenerate regeneration system maybe yeah um but i don't think you can say there was none at all <laughs> um it just doesn't logically follow to me just based on what i know about science and physics it's just like mm, i don't know about and I used to think this way. I was actually taught by my physics physics professors in college that there was no entropy before the fall, and that always it was like something stuck in my crawl. It's just like the whole idea from Calvinism when I was in um, in church. The idea of this dead dog analogy they gave, where you know you're dead before you're you're regenerated. I'm like, wait, was I? Ever, I don't remember being dead. Like dead, dead. So same thing with the entropy. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Like even heat itself, the fact that we we heat our bodies through through energy of breakdown of food doesn't that's entropy <laughs> it doesn't make any sense so. i love how this bothers you so much it does bother me it's like it's we all have our things and this is one of your this things this is yeah i even asked this question at a creation science seminar a couple years ago and i was like ah, got him so explain how there was no entropy before the fall blah blah and they're like and the guy's like the guy i asked the question of is a had a phd in uh, as a medical doctor in engineering and theology and i he's like no that's wrong i was like i thought i was being kind of smart <laughs> so that was actually one of the first threads of that that i felt like oh my god really don't understand this that well fair enough so um then as she moves forward so she act so this by the way this is what legalism does and when i say legalism i mean adding to the words of god um, does at her first sin. She adds to God's word. She pushes back the boundary of what God said, and she lies about what God said. So that's important. So she does accurately depict, though, that they can't eat of the tree. Now let's move forward into verses four through five, because, by the way, where this episode is going to get deep is a little bit later. This part is pretty simple. Uh, verse four, the serpent said to the woman, it is not true that you will surely die. Because God knows that on the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it had a, it had a pleasing appearance and that the tree was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Oh, that's no good. No bueno. So you see the manipulation we talked about Satan was going to do, right? He lies and tells the truth at the same time. What's the lie, Will? 
The lie is that you won't die. Yeah. But the truth is that their eyes will be open and they will be like God, knowing good and evil. And God even admits this at the end of the chapter. He's like, their eyes have been opened. They are like us. Yep. Um, so it means that, be, so being like God, so technically it makes them less like God in the sense that they're new, nat- uh, that they're sacrificing their innocent and pure nature for now this knowledge that was the forbidden knowledge, the forbidden knowledge that only belonged mm-hmm. to God. Good and evil should have only belonged to God. And that was because he is the, the, he is the source of morality. So if he's the source of morality, that knowledge belongs to him. And we said, no, we want that. And, well, not we, but Adam, Adam or Eve said, we want that. And so now they've taken the forbidden knowledge. So they were like God before, more so because they were perfect. Mm-hmm. But now that they had the knowledge that God had, they also gave up what made them most like God, which was their perfection. Yeah, now they're introducing sin and shame, all attributes that God does not have. Now they are, now they've separated themselves further from God, but they're also more like God in their knowledge of and, good and evil. And it's important to note here because when you see that, so she added to it, that's not even the sin that God accuses her of. Now, rabbis and sages have pointed that out for years, eons, mm-hmm. really, but... They, this is not one of those things where it's like that was counted against her. Why? Because, again, she did not have the knowledge of good and evil yet. So God's not going to count that against her. This goes into, again, what we've talked about with the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Hatov. And the Yetzer Hara is the desire of evil, and the Yetzer Hatov is the desire for good. And you cannot, and so the knowledge of good and evil, this is important, you cannot want what you do not know. Think about anything that you've ever wanted. You had to know about it before you wanted it, right? Like you had to know about something before you wanted it. Mm-hmm. Like um, my son. He's never had pizza before. He has no desire for pizza. Once he tastes it, he will have desire for pizza like I have desire for pizza. Right. And that's 24-7. <laughs> and uh, people have brought up even like the thing about sex before. Like, well, what about sex? What well, somebody doesn't want sex? They don't know about sex, but yet they have a sexual desire. Like that's still a sexual desire. That's a knowledge of I feel a certain way, mm-hmm. therefore, something's got to happen. I might not know all the mechanics yet, but I have a desire, which is an, so I, I have a knowledge that this is pleasurable, or I have an urge, therefore, I need to act out. Yeah, there is still so it comes from a knowledge claim. So I've had people bring that up as a as a proof of this isn't how it works. No, you have a desire, you have a knowledge of your desire. So. The Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Hatov. These are the two things that the Jews have taught and Israel has taught for years that mankind was born with. Mm-hmm. We were born this way. We are born this way with both desires. They were created that way originally, too. Like they had, and the, the um, evil inclination, one might say, is what we'd call the animalistic even desires, which is where your idea of even lust comes from, or the desire to eat, things like that. But your good is when you want to do something charitable, loving, and selfless. So you have one that's more like physical and uh, as the desire like they had, but it's also that which might work against you. So... But they, again, they didn't have knowledge of it, so they're not held accountable to it right now, right? Yeah. But he's also, we see that Eve has this desire to be like God, mm-hmm. right? And Satan is playing off that and hoping for that. So keep in mind that if you're saying that God, I mean, that, these, that we hadn't sinned up to this point, or mankind hadn't sinned, then why, where does she get the desire for to be like God? Where did she get the desire to even want the fruit? Where did, uh, she, why did she add to God's word? These are all things that indicate the fact that 
No, mankind had a free will up to this point. They had two, they had conflicting desires, but God wasn't holding them accountable to it at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because they hadn't had the knowledge of good and evil. Another question that gets brought up regularly is why would God even create a world with the tree then? If this is what sets everything down into motion, why create it with the tree? Why not just create a perfect garden without the tree? And I'll get be honest, that seems logical. I understand. Yeah, especially, you know, hindsight, we're like, God, if you wouldn't have put that there, we'd all be good. <laughs> right. Of course, now you're blaming God for the sin. Mm-hmm. But consider for a fact, for a moment, if you, so if you're the creator of all things, so again, you know, all, everything begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause, God is the best explanation for God's existence, the basic Kalam cosmological. So there's that, also the design. So you have God that creates this universe. Now, God is a personable God. He's a loving God, and he's personal. Therefore, he has to create personal creatures. Now, consider how in the world he's going to have a genuine relationship with his creatures. Only if they have a free choice, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I had people be like, well, if he, well, can't he give us free choice without that? No, because then it's really not a free choice. I can't be like, all right, with my daughter, Eliana, everything the light touches <laughs> is yours, except everything outside of my white picket fence. No, no, everything the light touches. No, no, but you have to stay in the fence. Honey, you can't go over there. You have to stay in the fence. But you said everything the light touches, Dad. <laughs> Sorry, Mufasa. Hope everyone's oh, yeah, it was a Lion King reference. Yes, okay. Um, We're so- millennials. Sorry. <laughs> that was a very impactful movie. <laughs> it was a, it's an amazing film, and I don't care what anyone has to say about that. So, But when you think about that, okay, that means they had to have a free choice to be able to say, I want to obey God's word and have a relationship with him and what he has said and his, and his, yeah. and the real, and the truth, or to be able to reject that because what makes a marriage special, I asked a guy this in Sunday school this last week, what makes my marriage special is my wife chose me and I chose her. If, if God set in motion, everything going, nope, this is what I decreed. This is what I commanded. I made all things come to pass without the inclusion of man's will. It is only my will that all things flow from. Then you are saying that God actively moved, he decreed, he royally commanded, he made it come to pass and demanded that the fall take place. And again, we're peeling onions here, and this last layer of the onion says that means God commanded sin. But you say that all that which God wills is good. So you're saying that God, God's will is good, God willing the man to fall is good, therefore evil is good. Yeah, and then you have a real problem. Then you have a real problem. So either evil is good or God is the author of evil. Either way, it's inconsistent because when you say evil is good, so what? So it doesn't make sense. So in, in fact, instead, if God made all things come to pass, created all things, and um, according to his goodwill, and part of his goodwill was to give mankind the free will, then it makes sense. They had to have a test. Um, Brad put it perfectly the other day. He talks about how God reluctantly would pass over, like, the evil over his shoulder, like, not looking you in the eye. They call it, the Jews call it the backside of God, like he's passing it to you from the backside over his shoulder because he doesn't want to get, he doesn't want there to be evil. But he knows in order for you to learn and in order for you to have a genuine relationship, you have to be able to confront evil, experience evil, and make a choice to do or not to do evil. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, what makes it great that my, it's not that I moved and made my wife marry me, okay? That's creepy. Um, Yeah. In fact, I chose her and she actively chose me. 
And nor would that be a good marriage if you if you just made her marry you. Right. I think anyone who's been married for any period of time, if you've even gone through just a, a short period where you felt like your wife didn't want you anymore, that there there was not a mutual connection, there was not a mutual desire for one another, it's terrible. It's right. absolutely terrible. And if I created a world in which my wife had no other choice but to love me, would I really feel loved? No, because it would be an illusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Hunt, Braxton Hunter uses this example. If I uh, gave my wife a love potion that made her fall in love with me, I, made, I became her greatest desire, and I married her, would that still be genuine love? No. Nope. She might desire me, sure, but it was put on her by an external force. So when we're saying that God is the, ex- oh, the only mover, the only external mover, you are saying that God is the one who's, yeah, if you, so that's kind of, here we go against the Reformed doctrines. If we go into the Reformed area where we completely jump ship and leave mankind's free will out of the equation, we go, nope, God is the supreme ruler. And, and, okay, cool, I agree. He is the supreme. He is sovereign. But then you say that that is not just supreme ruler, but he's also the supreme commander and doer of all, per, all things, and that's it, without the inclusion of man. You're in a real dangerous situation where you're saying that God desired evil, God made evil good, God moved and made evil take place. He's the author of evil and the commander of evil. And therefore, no one really had a choice to begin with. That's really kind of messed up. So um, sorry, my reformed friends. We're eventually going to probably just go through Tulip, I think would be important. But honestly, Genesis 1 through 3 really undercut a lot of the Protestant doctrines. They just do. I'm not saying I'm Catholic, okay, but I'm just just saying. So, well, I think too, it's it's a fair assumption here with Eve c- communicating with Satan that you know we read in the end of Genesis two that the nakedness was this this sign of of complete trust. They had no shame. They had no secrets. You're getting ahead they, of our notes. No, I'm not. I'm right in the right spot. Oh, and uh, and she so she, she has this she has this probably the same innate trust of satan she has no reason to not trust anyone right so here's this talking snake oh cool interesting guy he's got some things to say about this tree let me so she also is coming into this conversation with trust which i think that i think maybe paints a little bit different picture we always kind of put our own selves in these stories and like well i would have been like i hate snakes and that snake's talking to me i would have just run the opposite direction or when this snake's trying to sow doubt in my knowledge of god i would be like no this this guy's lying, but it's it's fair to say that she didn't even understand the concept of lying, right? She has no knowledge of evil, so I think there. I think this, it's a fair assumption, at least, that she had some innate trust of Satan here too, which he's playing on. Who knows? He, at, at this point, he may have been around a little bit more. She may have actually ran into him. Who knows? Yeah. Um. But it's but he he plays on her desire to be like her creator, and uh, she it says he plays on that. Um. That he's able to manipulate her. Mm-hmm. Then verse six, six says, you know, that she looked at it, it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes. So notice, of course, it's, it's attractive. Um, and that's a temptation and sin oftentimes is attractive. It's not unattractive. Why would you fall into something that looked gross? Well, I think that she also, her examination of it also shows she did still have some level of skepticism, right? She's like, all right, he said this is good to eat. Yeah, and Let now, me look oh, at it. I guess it does look pretty good. Oh, you're right. He was right. Okay, it is. It looks pretty juicy. Yeah, there's some skeptical skepticism there. There's some curiosity there. She's sizing it up uh, at this point. 
Um, and then it, right there it says, desire to make one wise. And notice how, again, good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil makes one wise, right? And that was the forbidden knowledge that only God was supposed to have. She was supposed to, they were supposed to be innocent, almost naive, and he was supposed to be the one with wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, because if someone knows uh, good and evil well, they actually are very wise. That's why usually old people are very wise, because they've experienced so much of life. They've seen so much good and bad, good and evil, that they're, they're very wise at this point, right? At least you hope so. Yeah. She took the fruit and she ate of it. And she also gave some to her husband who did not, absolutely did nothing to resist her. But it <laughs> says that he was with her, though, and he ate. So this means he was with her. Now, people have wondered how close was he with her at this time? Yeah. Was he within talking distance? Was How he big like, is this garden? Is it like 10 foot by 10 foot? <laughs> yeah. Like how, how close was he? It says he was with her. Um, so people have gone back and forth on that. But it's enough to say that I think he knew what was going on a little bit. And I think he, was, he wasn't he was doing his duty. But we'll talk about that. So um, wise is not what Satan said, though. Remember, he said knowing good and evil as mm -hmm. well. She takes it and she eats it. This is a free choice. Again, there has to be a free choice in order for love to exist. If you want, and a God is love, so therefore he's going to give his free creatures freedom. And so, that was a it was a manipulated choice, but it was still free. Yep. Right. And she I still, think Satan should, understood that. She still should have just doubled down and be like, you know, I'm going to go with God on this one. I'll talk to him about that when I walk with him later, and then I'll be I'll get back with you, serpent. Yeah. Let me ask him. <laughs> um, yeah, this is what God wants. Because the first thing he does is, of course, undercut God's authority, which is yep. what most people do. Uh, oh, you think LGBTQ is a sin? <laughs> oh, does, does God really say that? That's usually where people go and they start manipulating the situation. Um, they are free to, and notice also, so some talk about Adam and Eve um, being the only humans with truly free will. Yeah, some Calvinists will adhere to this idea where if they want, it depends what level of compatibilism they are, but I've talked to several that have, they will admit that only Adam and Eve were the ones with true free will. Which, again, if you go, if you believe that in your theology that God is the causer of all things and he decreed all things, he separated the end from the beginning with no free choice in, in there, then they were actually free, okay? They were still just following a divine decree. Yeah, it's essentially just compatibility. Compatibilism that has been excluded from everyone else except them. Right. But and if compatibilism is still really not compatible, then you're still stuck with the same problem. Again, I'll say what I said before. Compatibilism is determinism with lipstick. So um, they are That needs to be a T-shirt. It does need to be When you put that in the store. Uh, they're free to... So, and again, they're free to uh, walk away um, and to turn to God. They're free to walk away from, uh, from God. They are free to respond to evil. Um... I think really kind of comes again with talking about Calvinist doctrines. When you get into the idea of total depravity, that essentially says that man is unable to respond to the, the good news of the gospel. The gospel is ineffectual unless God has regenerated you first. And I think you see here, it's interesting that, that their desire or their turning away from God was a free choice that they made. Um, and it was something, so Satan's words were effectual, even though at that point in time, they were, they did not have the knowledge of good and evil. They did not have, if we as assume the idea of original sin, they did not have original sin yet, yet they were, the Satan's words were effectual. Why can't God's words be effectual? Also, there's a thing where, here where I'm like, yeah, this shows the fact though that you were saying Satan and sin is more powerful than God in a lot of ways. Um, for example... 
if I am born a sinner and I'm unable to do anything besides sin unless I am regenerated, then you are saying my sinful nature has to be overridden by God. I, that, that image bearer of God that I have inside me, that nature that God gave me, is overridden so much by sin that God has to restore me, right? But over here, we have a perfect creation by God. Creation has never been more perfect at this point. But, you know, they, they had the free choice to walk away into sin, but you don't have the free choice to walk away out of sin. So you're saying that sin is more powerful on the image bearer of God than God's perfect creation. Are you understanding my parallel here? Yes. Yeah, the opposite seems... If you take one side, the opposite also has to be true. Right. If, if, if in their freedom and in their nature they were free to sin uh, and enter sin, then also in your nature and in your creation you must be free to walk out of sin. You can't have both. You can't have an, either or. That's not how this works. Um, anyway, so... Uh, but at the same time, so we're talking a lot about Eve, but notice Eve is really being manipulated. Mm-hmm. Eve is being manipulated. Notice how God never counts it against her as being manipulated. And f- but instead, it was Adam who's considered that because he, while because uh, where was he? He was with her, but he did nothing. And Romans 5 talked about sin enters the world through Adam. Right. Not Eve, but we just read that Eve ate the fruit first. He, so we see him being complacent. We don't see him being a proactive leader as a man is supposed to be. Remember, we talked in our last episode that he is the administrator. He is also the one who's given stewardship and command in the garden. And then she was created to be his helper. Um, and so we see here that he didn't act in his role. He didn't do what he was told. So this goes against that idea, again, that, well, the gender roles weren't really created until after the fall. Again, no, this right here is showing it. Adam is the one who's accused of the sin because he was the one who complacently set by. He did not do his job. Again, rabbis have talked about this for centuries, and so has early church fathers and other people have brought it up. So the objection is doesn't stand. He did have a role. He didn't fulfill it. And then he willfully ate. She was manipulated. He willfully ate. Yeah, you see Eve talking back and forth to Satan, like, "Are you sure well, this is what God said?" Let me. She examines the fruit, and but when she hands it to Adam, he's like, "Hmm, yeah. nom, <laughs> nom 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 nom." He just eats it. <laughs> There's no discussion at all. Right. And so it's important as we're discussing this to make sure that you understand. The, the sequence of events here doesn't line up to standard Protestant doctrine, okay? So... And you're, you're, struck, you're stuck with the fact that Romans 5 says sin entered the world through Adam. So what was his sin? You, if you take all the other things we, we said, just remove it and say, okay, well, the complacency thing, I don't quite see that, whatever. You're still stuck with the problem of Adam sinned first. So what was the sin of Eve is, is put on Adam's shoulders. Mm-hmm. That's another form of complementarianism here where we see that Adam is taking, that has this responsibility for Eve. Right. Exactly. And it, I don't, I, honestly, I don't really care if you don't see it in there though, because it's like, no, this is something that's been always historically understood until we, re- I love it. I love the arrogance sometimes of modern theology where it's like, no, the past 3000 years of rabbis and sages all had it wrong. Also, the last 2,000 years of church history has had it wrong. I have discovered the truth. 
<laughs> like, oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a certain arrogance there. Um, well, then, the last point I want to make here before we move on to the verse seven. It's interesting here too that we see we see this parallel to what we see now, where Adam trusts his spouse over the word of God. Oh yeah, that's true. Which good point. We all do. I am guilty of this a lot, and this is not a condemnation of my wife, but we all point our spouses at things from time to time that are against God. And it, this is a form of sin against God where we're like, I trust my wife over God. I trust my husband over God. If God has explicitly stated it, like he did in Genesis 2, don't eat from that tree, then he should not have taken that fruit from Eve. Right, exactly. Verse, that's a good point, though, is not, yeah, don't trust your spouse over God's word. Um, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. So the eyes of both of them were opened is a fascinating statement. This is really where we see consciousness take place. Because before, they were living uh, innocently, right? You can almost think like children. Children aren't very conscious. When was the last time you met a self-conscious five-year-old? You don't really run into many of them. There's, like... This is when they finally receive full consciousness because now they understand good and evil. Now the world has a framework, but also their innocence is entirely destroyed. Why do you think that they were able to be naked? Yeah, I think nakedness really is the sign of full trust and zero shame, right? It's, it's almost this, this exemplification of not having sin or not even knowing sin yet. I think that's maybe a better way to put it, not knowing what sin is. So we, we read in our last episode at the end of Genesis 2, it talked about how they were naked and they had no shame. And it wasn't this thing about, okay, let's have this discussion about modesty. It's really a discussion of, of they had true trust in each other. Right. True, utter trust. We, all of us in our, the best marriages we can possibly have right now, we do not have that full trust that Adam and Eve had. Well, I think of like my, uh, I, uh, w- one of my uh, niece, I have nieces and nephews, right? And I have a nephew and I had a, I had a niece that are obsessed with running around naked. <laughs> it's just what they do. They have no shame in it. They don't care about it. Um, there's innocence there, mm-hmm. which is why usually when you see the kid, if you see, ever seen a kid go streaking, you end up laughing because you're like, wow, no shame in that one. And we've all said that. Wow, there's yeah. no shame there. And it's because it's innocence. So their nakedness before showed their innocence and the perfection of God's creation. That there was no need for shame. There's nothing but trust and openness and vulnerability um, of full openness. But then as soon as they sinned, they created clothing. And instantly they were now vulnerable, right? They were now, they felt vulnerable. They felt shameful. They felt like there was, there was sin and they felt like they had to cover their shame. Yeah. It's, this is a big theme. I, I'm just doing this calculation top of my head, but I think it's five different times nakedness is addressed between Genesis 2 and 3. That's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on in creation, and we talk about what they are or are not wearing five times in two chapters. That's, right. That's a lot. It's, it's a important. huge thing because it's, again, it's going, it's pushing, it does push against a lot of modern doctrines on this, but it also gives us a clearer picture of what God's original creation was. It's, it was perfect and innocent. It, it's not this, it, and it was blissful, but it wasn't the fact that they didn't have free will, but this is where we see them fully conscious. Their eyes were opened. Um, and we see here where Satan was telling the truth. 
he said that. Yep, this is where yeah, this is where the he truth knew came in. Um, and it says, uh, yeah, so and, and I also think there's <laughs> your son is one of the funnier people with that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, he has absolutely no shame. He will not close the the bathroom door. Um, he will go to the bathroom. He will go outside pee in front of anyone. He does not care. He act, has absolutely no shame about that whatsoever. Yeah, and, and again, it's not, and he, he shouldn't. He shouldn't feel shame. Because he has no need for it. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where it's like, well, should you feel that shame? Well, I mean, he shouldn't. Uh, I think that's when you're old enough, to, when you're old enough to have self-awareness, yeah, that's when it kicks in. Because that's also once sin enters the world, that's also when lust entered the world. Mm -hmm. So now it's not uh, an innocent, blissful, uh, innocent sexual relationship. Now there's also lust in there, too, and a desire for that which you should not have. Um, so... Uh, let's see, verse 8. Verse 8 says, They heard the voice of Adonai God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, so the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Adonai uh, among the trees in the garden. Adonai God called to the man, Where are you? So a couple things before we, uh, um, we get, move on too much I want to talk about here. And they heard the sound of the Lord in the garden in the cool day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. Sin always separates you. Now they were so ashamed, they were hiding from God. And this is interesting. It didn't, notice where the separation took place. We, we separate ourselves from God. It mm -hmm. is not God goes, be away from me, you filthy sinner. He go, we separate us. They ran from him. Yeah, he's still in their presence. Right. <laughs> he hid from them, and he pursued them. This is important because when we get to redemption, this is a pattern that we see again later. What does God do? We, in our sin, keep separating ourselves from God. He doesn't separate us from him. We separate ourselves from him, and he pursues us. That's the story of the, of the 99 sheep, right, and the mm -hmm. one that went astray. I pursued you. That is the story of the prodigal son. I, he is the father still waiting for his son to return and pursues him across the hills when he sees him from a distance. This, again, goes against <laughs> Reformed doctrines. And I know we're going after Reformed a lot lately. And We've had a lot of fun with it lately. Sorry. We have had a lot of fun with it lately. <laughs> we do love our Calvinist brothers and sisters. But, but they're wrong. And they also <laughs> give us some good, challenging discussions, and we appreciate but, but yeah, we also disagree. <laughs> but well, here's the reason why I bring it up a lot is because I notice a lot of we're part of the RFP community. A lot of people who jump from IFB jump to um, a lot of them jump into the Reformed because the IFB had so many added scripture, the added commands to scripture. Oh yeah, they hate Calvinists. <laughs> yeah, and they hate Calvinists. So it's like, well, what are they? What were the Calvinists? But then you go to Calvinists and they have sola scriptura. Well, sola scriptura sounds amazing when you have been nothing but been dealing with added on rules and legalism. Mm -hmm. So you're like, oh, yeah, that's right, Scripture alone. Well, then you listen to all the Scripture alone people. Who, who's the sole Scripture people? The Reformed people. And they are pulling out Bible, and they're telling you what the Bible says, and you go, oh, that's they're exegeting this properly, when really you don't realize that there's actually a framework that is being applied on top of it, and it is not necessarily always exegesis perfectly what the text says. Uh, a lot of people have frameworks that they apply to the text. So, um, and the Reformed are not exempt from that as much as James White in his recent video <laughs> acted like he, he did. He didn't. It was, but anyway, uh, with that debate with Craig, it was funny. Well, when um, I was preparing for this too. I was just thinking about, you know, until now, Adam and Eve hearing God walk through the garden was a pleasing sound. It was something mm -hmm. like, oh, God's here. Let's, 
Let's go have a discussion. Let's, Let's go ask have them fellowship, this is, right? This is, they have this, such this close personal relationship with God. And now this sound of God walking in the garden instills fear, instills shame, and they go run and hide and, and cover their bodies so that he can't see them. How This is so sad. It is so sad. Exactly. So they know evil now, and they know they are guilty. So because now they have the knowledge of good and evil, now they ha- realize that they are guilty of the evil. And they're also stupid because they think they can hide from God. <laughs> <laughs> they also weren't very bright, were they? Manipulated by a snake, and now you're, now you're running from God. What is your problem? Um, so then uh, as we move forward there um, in verses 9 through 10, but the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So God knows what's going on here. He knows oh, what's yeah. on. He knows what happened. Um, you done messed up, eh, Adam? That wasn't quite wow. right. Wow. 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 Really? I'm going to cut that out later. No, you're not. <laughs> you're going to keep that. That's funny. That was cringy and horrible. That was cringy. I was, that was a joke forming in my head in mid-speech. You know, you ever have that where you're like, that joke sounded better in my head? Uh, I have a lot of those. But that's why I'm like a machine gun with my jokes. <laughs> and I know eventually if I do a spray and pray, one of them will land. Yep. Just got to hit one. Yep. Um, so Adam responds to God, and he shows uh, his new understanding in his response, right? I knew I was naked, and I was ashamed. God knows exactly what that means. So now he's ashamed of his naked, uh, nakedness in front of God. Even his trust with God is ruined. Because, remember, nakedness is a sign of trust and vulnerability, and now he does not want to be vulnerable, and he doesn't trust God anymore because, well, his junk's hanging out, and he didn't really like that anymore. <laughs> Um, quick plug, I, I got you to read this. Um, the Circle Trilogy by Ted Decker. It's a fantastic book. To describe it would take 20 minutes, but all I will say about it is it has a fantastic uh, depiction of both the garden before the fall and after. And it kind of does it in a little bit more literal sense than what we see um, in our world with our own eyes. And it's, it's just fascinating. And it will it will also crush you when you read the fall part of that book. So it's a four-book trilogy, which annoys me to no end, but I highly recommend Ted Decker's The Circle Trilogy. Yeah, it is a, it is a yeah, they added, he added a fourth book later, so I think they just call it The, the Circle now. It's like their new way of dealing with it. Like, oh, no, it's yeah. The Circle, The Circle Trilogy. No, it's The Circle now. Four-book trilogy. Get what? out of here. <laughs> four-book trilogy. What is That's this? It's really good, though. That's a four-pointed triangle. This is a logical contradiction. This makes no sense. All right. So, verse 11 to 13 said, He, uh, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, the woman in all his great masculinity, the woman who you gave to, with, to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. <laughs> so in all, this is probably one, I think this is the most pathetic moment in scripture, by the way. He's just like, did you really just try to blame shift and then gaslight God? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so there's a lot in the, this statement to unpack. God asks the obvious question, um, because he knows that he, all right, how do you know that you're naked? I know how you know, cause I'm an, I'm, I'm omniscient and you must've eaten of the tree because <laughs> that's the only way to do it. And immediately follows up with what, with what could allow them to see their nakedness and their shame in the tree. Right? So Adam immediately blames God and then Eve. <laughs> so 
A couple things, stupid Adam. If God had commanded, decreed, without mankind's free will at all, and also the other reason I keep bringing up the free will theodicy is because I need our listeners to understand who are questioning their faith as well, why God has allowed evil. People ask a question I get all the time. It's important. Because there is free will, there is an ability to choose. Now, I'm not going to break down the will. Actually, it'd be a really fascinating uh, maybe episode to do one time. Like, what, what, what is the will? Can we break it all down? But there has to be a choice. If there's not a choice, it's not love. If there's not a choice, you don't, there is no, there is no point in doing good. There is no goodness if there is no possibility for evil. Right? Mm-hmm. Think of it like people think, think of a world without evil for a second. You go, oh, it'd be wonderful, it'd be peaceful. But also think about the selflessness you've seen in people. In horrible evil and suffering, the people will still rise above it and do the right thing. Yeah. Think of like how horrible the Holocaust was, but then think of the selfless pe- selflessness of people within it that they did to protect the Jews. It's like you go through history, you read these horrible stories, but then it's like read about the heroic stories in there. Because without supreme evil, there would also no be ability for supreme good. There has to be that choice in order for there to be a proper existence of anything that, that is worth choosing or worth merit. If there, if it's not worth merit, it doesn't take place, right? I mean, th- that wasn't worded right. If there isn't any merit in it, there's no point in doing it. Mm-hmm. But there's merit in doing good. Why? Because I could have done evil, but I chose to do good. There's some merit there. And I know someone's going to be like, oh, nothing we can do can please God. Are you really going to tell me that God is not pleased when somebody does good? I'm not saying that they can earn their salvation, but would God not? Would God rather me provide a home for somebody who is homeless as opposed to murder somebody? Even if I was unsaved, yes, of course you'd rather me help the homeless. Yeah, the the point of I think a good way to describe human free will is the ability to do otherwise, and we even see James define it that way when he talks about sin and says that you have the choice. There's always a choice to not do sin. Right. You f- will fail at it a lot, so but you have a choice. So he blames God. He, mm-hmm. he blames God, but consider if he never had a choice. His blame would have been right. <laughs> would have been correct, right? You did this, okay? I didn't do this, but no, I made the choice. And God makes that perfectly clear that no, you chose this, right? Yeah, God doesn't say, oh, you're right. And then notice how he <laughs> asked the woman, what is it that you have done? And she goes, well, the servant deceived me and I ate. So notice how God doesn't come on her on that. It's she was deceived. When someone's deceived, like if you were tricked and somebody tricked you and then stole $5,000 from you. No one's going to be like, wow, you gave that person $5,000. No, they tricked me into it. Same thing with what happened here. That's why she's not blamed. But instead she didn't obey God though, still. So there is still a curse on woman. So God confronts her. Uh, So she does try to pass the blame though, right? She goes, well, the serpent deceived me. And God's like, yeah, but you knew better, right? Yeah, so, so the first interactions we have with Adam and Eve post-fall is, one, they're talking about their shame, and they're passing the blame onto God, onto themselves, onto Satan. It's what we see all the time now. Oh, everyone wants, everyone wants to avoid the mm-hmm. responsibility for their sin, which is all, another reason why I think the doctrine of being born sinners is dangerous, because you're saying that they were born that way and they couldn't have done otherwise. Yeah. 
They don't have a Yetzer Hatov. They only have a Yetzer Hurrah. What else did you expect them to do? They only have an evil inclination. Um, so any theological framework, and I'll say this boldly on here, but I know I'm going to irritate some people, but again, you know what you're getting when you come here, so I don't really care. That's your problem. <laughs> okay. Um, any theological framework that attempts to remove our culpability for sin or our free will might actually have the same root and belief system as Adam and Eve did in this situation to be able to pass the buck. So I actually, am, uh, I may have told this story before, but in, in my computer class once, there was a girl that I was talking about, she was going to sneak out later on that night with her boyfriend. And she was like 14. I was like, wow, you're allowed, my, your parents allow you to date because we're like a little homeschool community and computer <laughs> class. Um, and she was like, well, the Bible says we're just born sinners, so you may as well just sin anyway. And can I falter for that? Well, she's saying that I could not have done otherwise. It's a correct conclusion to a false premise. Exactly. So... Verses 14 through 15. Sorry, I now switched to the ESV, I realized. I'm not sure if you noticed that. Oh, I just started switching. <laughs> I just got tired of trying to read my Bible. I'll be fun later for Tabby yeah. for the overlay. Sorry. She's, she's going to hate me. <laughs> All right. So the Lord said to the serpent, and now we see the judgment of this. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he, will bruise, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So again, God doesn't take responsibility for Satan. He turns to cursing Satan. So he didn't tell, he command Satan to do anything. He didn't decree this. Mm -hmm. This isn't what he wanted. But as my buddy Jordan said, if he gave mankind free will and he gave Satan free will, he gave creatures free will, uh, Jordan Ferrier, we're going to have him on soon, uh, he put it perfectly, then God could not have stopped it because he chose to give them free will. That was part of his choice. Yeah, otherwise it'd make him a liar. Right, exactly. So does Satan have free will? Yes, Otherwise, why would God not give him free will uh, to, and then just make him rebel and destroy things? That sounds horrible. I want you to notice, too, Satan gets cursed here, but Adam and Eve do not. And I think a lot of times people, when they're, they're trying to talk about original sin, they infer a curse on man, and it's not there. Well, it's not that, that curse. There's, like, kind of curses, but it's not like you're cursed with, uh, with a sin, evil nature. Yeah, it's not there. It's not coming from Genesis 3. Right. So Satan's cursed, though. So then the animal, uh, the Satan body now is cursed also not to, ha to have legs and um, also eating dust, which is the idea of total defeat. Think about the phrase like, eat dirt. That means I defeated you. Um, he's forced to be on his belly. belly um, so all nobility of the serpent was removed. Um, and he creates natural animosity between Satan and mankind. Right? And you think when we just talked about earlier about how Eve probably had this innate trust of Satan because she was she did not have any sin. She was naked, had no shame. So she had this innate trust with Satan, and that caused this manipulation. Right. Caused her to be vulnerable. And we see, I think, this act of grace from God here now. He's going to put this innate um, understanding, apprehension, reservation every time we interact with Satan. It's actually helping us. It's helping us not be manipulated by Satan all the time. One of the interesting things I actually think about as far as Jewish sages are concerned regarding this story is the fact that they don't just view this, because, I mean, I've had people like, well, how do the Jews view this? And I think this is true, because I think some things have double meanings. 
enmity between your seed and uh, you know you, the woman and you. He was talking to a snake. Ever since then, what has mankind regularly avoided? Snakes and dangerous parts of nature. This is God saying now that you have, he's also pointing to the nature of the world, like the creatures within it. There's now enmity between us and them. So now you're instantly, think about it. While while the man is working the field, which we're about to get to here in a minute, that means the woman is staying home to protect the children while the man is working. So now there's enmity between her and the serpent because she's going to have to take care of her children because her children are now vulnerable to the serpent and the dangers of the world. Mm -hmm. So that's what this is kind of getting at as well. So yes, of course, there's enmity between us and Satan, but there's also enmity between us and nature now. Nature is dangerous. Go to Australia. Everything's trying to kill you in Australia. Um, Luckily, I live in Michigan, and the most dangerous thing I have is a brown recluse, right? (laughs) Right? I don't know. I don't know, rabbit squirrels. But uh, but you think, uh, you know, or or winters, right? Winters put against us. That's true. That sucks. Um, And I also think it's interesting, too, that if we have this natural enmity against Satan, then he isn't the cause of every sin. You are, too. You have some blame for your own terrible choices. You don't get to pass it all on Satan. I've been saying it for a while, and Pastor John finally said it last week. We give Satan too much credit. We act like we do. He's, we act like he's omnipresent and omnip- omnipotent, where it's like, oh, he can, yeah, Satan tempted me this week, and he got me into this. I'm like, you really think that? Satan's not om- omnipresent, dude. He can't be everywhere. Mm-hmm. think he is constantly being the one who chooses you. You ever think is that your desire that you're falling, yeah, you're susceptible to? I don't think Satan needs much help. Uh mm-hmm to do that. He just has to try to get you to ignore God um, more than anything. So this is a form, like I said, of grace being there as well. So God also prophesies the doom of Satan here in the same sentence that we see the offspring of Eve uh, will crush his head while Satan will only be able to bruise his heel. This is repeated again in Romans 6.10, I believe, um, if memory serves. Uh, I, I, I'm not... I'm coming up short real quick. I'm not going to sit here and search forever. But I want to say it was uh, Romans 6.10 or around that area where he mentions the fact that, yeah, yeah, Jesus crushed Satan's head. So this is the first prophecy of, like, I'm going to use the mankind that you are you attacked here, my creation, I'm going to use it to crush you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm going to be, the, of course, the one who crushes you, but I'm going to use them as part of that process. So yeah. uh, first messianic prophecy right there. Verse 16 says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall have rule over you. Here we go. So now we're, now we're talking about Eve. We've moved away from Satan. And like we said, this is, this is not a curse, but is a punishment. Right? A little bit different than Satan. We, we see another form of mercy from God, which is kind of cool. We don't just see this, this complete angry God who's just, he's just raging and everything's terrible. He's communicating with them. He's still in their presence. Um, and he's, and he's showing them some mercy, even though they, they'd done messed up. So he says in verse 18 here that he will, uh, multiply your pain. No, says multiply, which means that there was pain beforehand. He's multiplying the pain though. He's making it worse. So not, so, um, none of these punishments are new. Okay. So just make it just makes difficult what we was easy probably before. So essentially, it's multiplying the issue at hand. 
So uh, where the snake was actually fully, you know, the, the legs were removed. You're, of course, to, you know, slither on the ground. I'm putting enmity between you and nature. Um, there's you're all this stuff. You're actually going to have doom. <laughs> yeah, like doom on you, all right? <laughs> uh, it's a lot more intense. This is simply multiplying and reinforcing in a stronger sense some of the things that already existed. So we had multiplying ch- pain and childbearing. And it says your, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Now, in some translations, like the KJV and others, they'll say your desire will be to your husband. And this has very much confused people. Okay, is it contrary or is it to? Is it contrary or is it to? Which one is it? These are two totally opposite th- <laughs> things. So what the phrase here in actually the Hebrew is saying is that the desire is to the husband's position, essentially, what he is supposed to be, his administrative role. So that's why certain people are like, well, it's contrary to, right? Because it's going to go against his role. But the Hebrew is like contrary to, but indicating his position. Um, So that's why that's written that way, because technically either one's correct. It just depends on how you, if you're understanding the Hebraic idiom being getting at here. So because, again, now that the thou that sin has entered, she is going to have a desire to be in his position. Hashtag feminism. So, uh, it's, yeah, it's not instantiating a new headship arrangement in marriage. Correct. It's essentially pointing out the desire, the evil desire that also comes on with the good desire that they have knowledge of now is going to cause conflict. Right. They, the, the perfect marriage is now out of reach. Right. There's going to be shame. There's going to be enmity. There's going to be distrust, and it's going to cause problems. There's right. going to be a fight for essentially power. Right. Because originally it was he's the steward, he's the administrator, she's the helper. It was this great like I, like complementary role where they both function perfectly together as husband and wife should. But now it's going to be well, he is going to probably want to be complacent because he's not going to want to fulfill his role. She's going to want his role and. It's the easier thing as a Mr. Complacent to let her, mm-hmm. but then she's going to be miserable because she doesn't want to. I can't tell you guys how many marriages I've counseled, and half the time it's either I want him to step up, but he won't step up, or it's she runs the show, and I want to say. And it's always dealing with this, this issue right here, and that's because man and men are supposed to be the stewards of God uh, in the household in this sense. We are supposed to be, and I, I think... Uh, a, a rabbi put it really well. Men are pri- now. It doesn't mean that the lines don't blur in between, but men are primarily focused on the external of the home, dealing with the work, dealing with um, administrative stuff, dealing with being the legal representative of the home. You know, that's why. Like, if I ever had a problem with your family, Brian, I'd go to you. I wouldn't go to Stacy. Uh, but. At the same time, she deals mostly with the internal, which is why when it comes to uh, a lot of things with planning, figuring things out, uh, things that are going to inside my home, I, uh, we oftentimes will defer to Callie, my wife, right? Because that's that relationship, how it's supposed to kind of function. This is the way it was originally designed. Sorry, this is a lot of talking, but I think it helps you understand that these roles existed before the fall. They're just now magnified in the fall because... Now we have knowledge of good and evil. Therefore, we have uh, opposite desires. Yeah, the differences are what's magnified. The, yeah, the differences are, are what's magnified. Exactly. So, um, good talk. All right. Uh, then to Adam uh, or Adam. Now, fun fact for you, Adam means man in Hebrew. So whenever you see a uh, man mentioned in the Bible, it's actually Adam. So fun. Uh, so... To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now notice as well, by the way, he talks about Adam being dust because he formed him from the dust of the ground. So this is a very specific thing to Adam, (laughs) where he's like, I took you from the dust, and I'll put you back in the dust. Like, it's just a very, very intense statement. And it's a fulfillment. We're going to jump ahead a little here, but the fulfillment of the promise of what the ramification was for the sin of eating from that tree. It is death. To dust you return is death. Mm -hmm. And notice also, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, so that's part of his sin was listening to his wife not fulfilling his proper role as leader and uh, uh, chief leader. Now, I'm not saying never listen to your wife, okay? But you guys should, uh, I think you guys understand what I'm saying here. Like we said, the listening to his wife in contrary to God's commandment. That exactly. was the sin. So then uh, you shall not of it because you listened. Uh, yeah, he is responsible for listening to Eve over God and eating for the fruit that God commanded him not to. But Adam isn't cursed here either, but it's another mercy. But the ground is cursed. I find this interesting. <laughs> so um, this is actually something um, another rabbi has pointed out, that it wasn't just that it was going to be hard work, the man's commanded to hard work, but that the ground was going to be hard to work. thought that was really mm-hmm. well put. Like, it's not just I'm working hard. It's that this is going to be work that's going to be hard to figure out. It's going to be tough. And I feel like I feel that every day at work, and I think you do too. Oh yeah. Um, so pain shall, so pain shall come from working the ground to eat. And uh, remember, it says originally that a mist was going up from the land and was watering from the whole face of the ground. Well, work now was expected to get anything from the ground, right? And God only cared for it prior to man. Now He's asking man to fulfill the role. Yeah. So we are given the administrative role of caring for the earth. And I think it alludes again to there's nothing new here. The expectation from Genesis 2.6 was that God was working the ground, was making things grow because man didn't exist yet. Man comes, the expectation is man was there to work. Right. But now, now that man has sinned, now that work is hard. And like you said, now the ground is hard to work. Right. It's not as easy to do. So again, we're just making, God's making things harder that were easy as part of this punishment. Right, and then hence the thorns and thistles will come from the ground. And I would agree with your little side note in here, Brian, that perhaps these plants did not exist in the garden. I don't think they did. I think this is when they became, because God is cursing the ground. Now you are going to struggle on this earth. That's mm-hmm. his whole point. Like, you did this? All right, cool. You want the knowledge of good and evil? Great. Now you're going to struggle on this earth. It's going to be hard work. Yeah. The, works, the ground's going to be hard to work. You're going to deal with thorns and thistles. It's not going to be comfortable. You're going to, woman, you will have pain in your childbirth and you will always be in contrariness to your husband desiring his position. And he is going to just have to slave away to provide for you. And so that he has to, so actually Jordan Peterson put this perfectly. And I think it's a great way to put it. Women, because of childbearing, and I'm sure women, you know this, when you have a child, that child consumes your life. Because breastfeeding and things like that, there's things that a mother can provide that a father cannot. Mm-hmm. So a woman is constantly having to sacrifice her future for the present. Take care of the baby presently. Take care of the baby presently. Present, present, present. I have to work on the present, which is why I think a lot of single mothers really struggle because that's what's happening. She was left with the child, and now she's constantly having to deal with the present. She's unable to provide well for her future, which is why a lot of times they live in poverty. Mm-hmm. And then she's also expected to also do the man's job. Right. 
which is to work and provide. But the man is constantly having to sacrifice his present for the future. So she might, she is having to sacrifice her um, future for the present. And he's always having to compromise the present for the future. He's having to work always for that next bite, that Mm -hmm. next home, the next thing. And that's what this is dealing with, that they're now cursed with different focuses here. These, these curses, the things that existed before are now magnified. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And he's going to sweat trying to do it. Right. Which is why not going to be easy. I wanted my wife to be able to stay at home. She wanted to be a stay at home mom. And uh, many women, it's like that's what they really desire is to be around their kids more. Statistics have shown this, by the way, in, in countries where they've even striven, strived to be as egalitarian as possible. We're going to get rid of all man and women divides. The divide between men and women became greater. Yeah. In the Scandinavian countries, especially. Now, women, especially, were working with kids, uh, being at home more with their families or going into uh, more relational focused things. People can say that it's sexist all day, but we are different. Men and women are different. Men, statistically speaking, will always choose to work more hours than women, like almost regularly. That's why men tend to be more CEOs because men are more likely to sell their soul to a company where women, uh, they're actually less likely to work more overtime and stuff. And they are more likely to leave work early to be able to go to family events. And you can sit there and say, say, oh, you're saying men are stronger than women. Actually, I'm saying that women probably have better family values (laughs) than men, but men are where we have that crushing responsibility that we will, I mean, I'm sure you've, you've, you have felt that as a man. Oh yeah. And I think, Every guy, when they're married, and especially when you got kids, you feel this exceptional weight of being able to provide. Like you said, constantly focusing on the future because you don't get that, you don't have the benefit of just going, oh, well, I guess it will show up. Right. Which is why when I got my job, that was the thing that me and Kelly were praying for, that God would give us a job like this mm-hmm. that would allow her to stay home. And I know she just won't have desired it, but I felt like it was a crushing responsibility for me to fulfill. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we're almost done here, so I think we can truck to the end. Yep, let's um, do it. So the man called his wife's name. Oh, wait. No, yeah, right. So, oh, yeah. So the physical death is the punishment for sin. We forgot to mention that. So it is not just a spiritual death here. It is a physical death. And that's why for the wages to sin is death. This is why we also say death is a mercy um, from God. God is love and death is a mercy because it actually gives us a release from the sinful world. Otherwise, we just keep living in it. And it's a mercy. It allows the suffering to finally end. It allows you, okay, you have done your time here. So, um, but that's the thing. You will surely die, all right? There's consequences to your actions. So, um, all right, verse 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve, or Hava in the Hebrew, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Notice how God provided them clothing. So they made loincloths to cover their own shame, but God covered their shame. And this is the first time we see something innocent dying for the guilty in Scripture. Yeah, this is really, we were talking about this before tonight, and it's a really cool parallel. We see God covering their sin with these animal skins, and it's a really wonderful parallel to see what he will do later with the blood of Christ cover their sins completely and for good. Exactly. So these coverings were a symbol that through the sacrifices to come and in the coming of Messiah, humanity would be freed from the brokenness of sin and shame. Something innocent was dying for the guilty. And I think that's a beautiful picture. Yeah. 
and more, more mercy yet from God, even in chapter 3. Right. So I think it, we just skip over that all the time. Yeah. That's why I'm really trying to focus on that tonight is there's a lot of mercy here from God throughout this entire chapter. Right. Yeah. He, okay. You lied. You you manipulate. There's so much going on, but he keeps showing, yeah, I'm still caring for you, but I'm judging you and punishing you too, but I'm also providing for you. Yeah. And I just find that the thing, the garment, so incredibly like, wow, that is amazing where God still showed mercy in that and is a perfect symbol that... And this is where, again, Hebraic poetry stuff, that was a symbol of covering our sin and shame. God covered their sin and shame. He provided better covering for the sin and shame than they could provide for themselves. Mm -hmm. Cool picture. Really cool. Um, Verses 22 through 24, let's do this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. There it is, the key right there, right? Both. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So if you take the tree of life, you live forever. This is why you see it also in the restored creation at the end where we all have eternal life. That tree is a provision of eternal life. But notice how he says, well, hold on, lest he becomes like us. He has already become like us, knowing good and evil. Let's separate him from the tree so that lest they live forever. Why? Because they had to die again was a mercy. If they lived forever, that would be unmerciful. And this is, again, a thing of mercy. And people seem to kind of miss this a little bit. Mm-hmm. And again, this also flies in the face of some of the atonement theories and some of this, these views of God. Like, man, the wrath of God was satisfied. I love the song in Christ alone. But the, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's not nowhere in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Nowhere in Scripture does it talk about God's wrath having to be satisfied. Never. <laughs> He talks about pouring out his wrath on the unbelievers, but it wasn't something that had to be satisfied. His It's satisfied when he judges the unbelievers and the evil and they're unrepentant. Mm-hmm. And it's satisfied. Um, so it's a real problem. <laughs> it's a real problem here. It's like, no, if God was as wrathful as he was, he wouldn't show this much mercy. Um, so God admits to himself right here that man has now indeed become like him and more and more in their knowledge of good and evil. Notice it's not just evil again. This is good and evil. They now have knowledge of good and evil, which is meaning that God's saying that now we should expect to see those things to happen, Mm -hmm. good and evil, which is this explains why unbelievers and atheists do still that which is good. When you say that people can't do good apart from believing in Christ, you are flying in the face of reality. I know, I work with somebody who's an unbeliever, and he does so many great and selfless things all the time for people around him, and he doesn't expect anything in return. But he's an unbeliever. He, he, mm-hmm. Well, he's like, I don't know, he's, he's confused. I'll put it that way. So, but I see each and every day. I'm like, because he's recreating the image of God. He has knowledge of good and evil, same as us. Yeah, flies in the face of reality and also flies in the face of Scripture. And can you imagine trying to tell an atheist, like, yeah, no, what, this is the true doctrine of God. You don't do good. And he's like, I have done good. And you're kind of gaslighting them, right? Mm-hmm. You're gaslighting like, oh, no, you, you really haven't done good. No, I know I've done good. The question isn't whether people can do good ever. The question is whether or not their goodness can ever attain righteousness. And it can't because you still have that yes or, ha, uh, yes or hurrah that's going to get in the way, that evil desire that's going to get in the way. And you have fallen into sin in the past willfully. Mm-hmm. So you'll never be able to reach righteousness because righteousness is no is when you don't choose evil ever. 
Now, and I think it's really interesting here, shifting gears, verse 24, where he, he drives him out and he places the cherubim, the flaming sword. Why? Because he knows, he says, right, um, that they'll reach out and take of it. He's worried about them eating from the tree of life. They obviously don't, right? So is God worried about something that cannot happen because it's outside of his divine decree? Or... Is this showing that God knows what Adam and Eve would do, their descendants would do, if they had free access through their free will to this tree? So he protects it with this cherubim. This is showing middle knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if they do this, they, yeah, let's just put the angel here to make sure they don't do that. <laughs> I find going through this like, ah, oh, there it is again. And people have wondered, did they try to get the tree to the tree of life? Some people say yes. Some people say no. I don't really make an assumption there. I'm just saying that that's an interesting thought. Um, so the point is, there's a lot. Oh, my goodness. There's a lot here. <laughs> um, there's a lot in Genesis chapter 3. And we've talked about a lot. And I hope it's been clear at that part. But bottom line is, we see things that would have been considered sinful before the fall but not counted against them until after they have the knowledge. Then we see their consciousness. Then we see their sin and shame. Then we see God provides to cover their sin and shame, just like he covers us with our sin and shame through the blood of Jesus Christ as he used the blood of these other living creatures. It just means something innocent dying for the guilty, which shows also how horrible your guilt is. It's actually this really interesting moral reflection of, wow, I had to, something innocent had to die to pay for my sin and debt. Like my sin and shame, it's a pretty powerful, yeah. pr powerful picture. So, um, yeah, I don't know, guys. Uh, so the point is here is uh, this is why I think the doctrine of original sin as understood. Now, I believe that the original sin did take place, but I don't believe in the doctrine of original sin. We're all born sinners. Um, I believe we are now after the fall. Now, because people are going to ask me, well, what do you believe? Now that we have the knowledge of good and evil, we have the forbidden knowledge. I believe we have instead of a evil, sinful nature where we're born evil and rebellious against God, I believe we have a uh, best way to put it. It's like a fallen moral rectitude. I now will not be able to make perfectly moral choices because I will now have conflicting desires pulling me other directions, which is why um, if you want to talk about free will or whatever, free will does deal with desire too. There's desire, there's intellect, there's mm -hmm. ways to, there's a lot of things that can uh, manipulate or change or, or shift or influence really. That's a better word It's influence a decision. Um, and sometimes you, you've probably had to make a decision that was separate from your desire, which is why I think compatibilism is wrong because compatibilism tends to say that we follow our greatest desires and that's not always true. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people who, had to, who have chosen not to follow their greatest desire, uh, even when they were unsaved, because they knew it was morally wrong. Yeah, we see in James 2, he talked about how desire, evil desires lead to sin when, when fully uh, manifested. So you keep, if you keep fighting that desire and you fail to fight it, and you fail, and you eventually go, yep, I'm giving into that desire, and you do the act of sin, that is, that is what leads to it. Desire leads to sin. And that is what and that is what is held against you. So not birth leads to sin, desire leads to sin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, in short, also you know what man, what God kind of uh, punishes man with here is 
Again, we men, we are now constantly having to compromise the present for the future. Women are constantly having to compromise the future for the present, which is why, again, it's complementary, where someone's going to have to take care of the present. Someone's got to take care of the future. Um, so that's why it's still complementary, but now our, our roles are going to be more difficult because we have a fallen moral rectitude. Um, and that's why I think men, by nature, either want to be authoritarians or complacent. So they want to be overcharged authority, but then they forget to love their wife properly, as Paul will talk thoroughly about, Yeah. Um, and not be a balanced husband there. Or they want to be complacent, and they don't want to step into the role at all. And then I've seen it with both, where it's like he's too complacent, and she's frustrated because she wants him to lead. Or I've seen it where he wants to lead, but she doesn't want him to lead. And she doesn't let him fulfill his role. So, um, and before people start bringing up Deborah and all that, look, I don't have time for that conversation right now. <laughs> um, but I trust me, it's not like none of us know that Deborah exists, but there is some historical context there to take place. We can probably discuss that another time. This isn't to say that again, men and women aren't value, aren't equally valuable either. We are, we're equally valuable. As I said, someone has to take care of the present. So someone has to take care of the future. You can't exist well without it. Single mothers and fathers are really good uh, proof of that, that like, and I, I understand if you did, you became single against your, against any bitter judgment of your own, right? Maybe uh, he was horrible um, or maybe he ran away or maybe he died or maybe she died, whatever. But I'm saying that it's, it puts us at a major disadvantage. Studies show that children do better in uh, two parent households. Um, all the data shows that. So again, this isn't me being, this is us being sexist. This is actually very data driven. Well, and it shows too, that if you are a single parent and you are kicking butt and your child is excelling, that you are beating all the odds. You're going against all of what right. should be there in place for you to, to rear that child correctly. Good for you. You tried really hard and you are, you're doing it better than what is expected. Right. And you're the exception, not, not, not the rule. Mm -hmm. Um, but also a lot of people that when that, when that's happening and they're, when their kids are turning out great and they are single parents, it usually means that they have a support system around them, helping yeah. them, uh, and which you should have. So anyway, I, I don't want to get too many tangents and rabbit holes because we could go a lot into the gender roles thing. We, you and I have both studied that stuff out a lot, uh, as far as like sociology on it. We've studied psychology on it. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting data out there that actually points to a complementarianist, uh, structure but a lot of people don't like to talk about it nowadays because it's considered sexist i'll just say it's not sexism it's science uh <laughs> now there are people that claim complementarianism and are very much sexist yep and we just say that they do it wrong they don't understand it right well that's usually like i said before there's a there's like an extreme headship view and uh then they call it complementarianism and it's not really complementarianism because there's nothing being complimented when you're the only one running the show mm -hmm. <laughs> so hey man i just want her to compliment me i just want <laughs> <laughs> let's face it us guys want that. <laughs> I, I, I'm a complimentarian because I just want her to compliment me. <laughs> See, no, that, I that, got a good joke. That was a tonight. quality <laughs> joke, Brian. Very good. Way better than that. Nor the other one. You messed up a, a Adam or whatever that was. Ugh. Ugh. Anyway. Square peg, round hole. Sorry. All right. Um, so, guys, hope this was helpful for you. And I don't want you guys to just think that all we're doing is going after Reformed theology, but I do believe... Um, a proper view of God helps. If you have a good view of God, it frames your everything right. Then 
you don't run into the whole, why did God allow this? And why, I mean, um, when I had a friend of mine that experienced a horrible tragedy, he kept saying, why did God allow this? Why did God do this? And it's like, whoa, 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 God didn't do that. Just because you suffered evil doesn't I mean God did it. Uh, so stop blaming God for all the evil that takes place. You are removing a very important part, which is the, the will of man. And uh, we don't need Satan's help messing things up, I don't think, because he's not omniscient and he's not omnipresent, which means a lot of those horrible things are happening from us. We did it. Yes. You did it. So stop <laughs> trying to pass the puck. But anyway. All right, guys. If you haven't already, like and subscribe to The Church Split. Add a comment down below. And, of course, hopefully you'll get featured in the next episode. If you haven't already, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And uh, is there anything else you want to add, Brian? No, I appreciate you guys listening and look forward to interacting with you guys in the comments. All right, guys. Take care and God bless.